Hello and welcome to Keep the Bastards Honest, the podcast of the Australian Democrats. I'm your host, Alana Mitchell, and on this episode, we're going to give you more information on how the federal budget works than you ever imagined you ever needed to know. Apologies for the break in transmission between our pre-budget discussion and now. I've had some commitments crash into my calendar that have delayed the release of our post-budget discussion. One of those commitments was someone who shall remain nameless because it was me suggesting that as well as our annual budget analysis, we should do an explainer episode on how the budget works. That sent me down a research rabbit hole that I have only just emerged from. And having learned far more about the federal budget than I thought possible, I'm going to share it all with you, our dearest listeners, so that when you come to our post-budget analysis, you'll be full bottles on the process that has delivered the items we're discussing. So let's get to it. A budget is one of the most important policy functions of government, whether it be the federal government or a state or territory government. In the case of the federal budget, the members of the federal government, through their budget decisions, identify their policy priorities and manage federal income, known as revenue, and federal spending, known as expenditure. Governments use the budget process to establish spending priorities and identify revenues to pay for those activities. The size and scope of those decisions make the budget process one of the most important and complex exercises in government. And they do it every year. So how does the budget work and what does it involve? Let's start with what the budget is. The budget is made up of a collection of financial documents. The main documents explain the government's assessment of the national economy and how it's performing, the government's priorities for the coming year, how much money the government expects to collect and from whom, and how the government plans to spend this money. Section 83 of the Australian Constitution specifies that the Australian Parliament must approve the spending of money. This means that the federal government must get the cooperation of the opposition and potentially the crossbench in order to be able to appropriate money to pay for anything. The salaries of public servants, the defence force, hell, paying the electricity bill for Parliament House. To get the money to pay for anything, the government has to have what's called appropriation bills passed by the Parliament. These are pieces of legislation that are part of the documents that make up the budget. Have you ever wondered where Australia keeps all its money? Have you ever heard of the Consolidated Revenue Fund, or Consolidated Revenue for short? Imagine it as a gigantic piggy bank where all of Australia's income is stored before it gets redistributed by, you guessed it, the budget. Every year, the Parliament has to get money from the Consolidated Revenue Fund piggy bank in order to pay for the stuff that keeps the country running. And the way they do that is to pass the appropriation bills. These bills enable the government to appropriate money from Consolidated Revenue. It's the government equivalent of opening up the piggy bank and shaking it really, really hard. The first appropriation bill that needs to be passed is literally called Appropriation Bill Number 1. Appropriation Bill Number 1 dips into the piggy bank to fund all the stuff that enables the country to keep operating. All the stuff I mentioned earlier, public servant salaries, 
government department budgets, the defence force, social security, everything that needs to happen no matter who's in government. Now, if there's an appropriation bill number one, then you're probably wondering if there's an appropriation bill number two. And you're correct. There is an appropriation bill number two. Where appropriation bill number one covers all the existing expenses and ongoing expenses involved in running the country, appropriation bill number two covers all the new priorities that the federal government wants to spend money on. It also covers funding for the states and territories. While they have their own budgets and raise some of their own revenue, a lot of the money that the states need to run things at state level comes from the federal government. And the federal government has to appropriate this money from the Consolidated Revenue Piggy Bank each year to give to the states. So is there an appropriation bill number three? Kind of. There is a third appropriation bill, but it's not called appropriation bill number three. Instead, it's called appropriation, open brackets, parliamentary departments, close brackets, bill. And it appropriates money for the parliamentary departments. This is the bill that dips into the piggy bank to enable the parliament itself to run. This bill ensures that the electricity bill for Parliament House gets paid, buys the toner for the photocopiers, and pays the gardeners to mow the lawns. The collective item for the appropriation bills, particularly appropriation bill number one, is called supply. You've probably heard of the concept of blocking supply or guaranteeing supply. Guaranteeing supply becomes a thing when a government ends up in minority and where it has to rely on the votes of independents or minor parties on the crossbench in order to pass legislation and essentially govern. When this happens, the very first thing those independents and minor parties get asked by the media, and pretty much everyone, is will they guarantee supply? And like clockwork, those independents and minor parties will say, yes, of course, I will guarantee supply. But that's often the only thing they'll do. They tend to reserve the right to judge all other pieces of legislation on their merits and vote accordingly. But guaranteeing supply is crucial. Remember at the top of the episode where I said that the Constitution requires the Parliament to approve the spending of money by the government? Guess what happens when the Parliament doesn't approve the spending of money? The government cannot operate. And if it cannot operate, if it cannot spend money, and keep the country running, then what authority does it have to be a government? Now, the most famous example of this is the dismissal of the Whitlam government in 1975. And all the ins and outs of the dismissal don't just deserve their own episode, they deserve their own podcast series. And thankfully, the ABC has already produced that for us. Their podcast series is called The Eleventh, And if you haven't listened to it, I strongly recommend that you do. It's a brilliant piece of work. I'll put a link in the show notes for you. So now that the government has cracked open the piggy bank to fund itself and the parliament for another 12 months, you're probably wondering where the money in the piggy bank comes from. The federal government collects money from several different sources, including taxes. These are applied on incomes, which is people wages, income from investments and other incomes, taxes on business profits and the sale of items, so the GST, the goods and services tax, uh, the luxury car tax, and excises on petrol, alcohol and tobacco, or customs duties, so a tax on the importation of items into Australia, 
or the exportation of goods out of Australia. Charges such as the Medicare levy, public or government-owned company profits, and selling government assets. So once the government has appropriated money from the piggy bank to fund their spending, what are they going to spend it on? Apart from funding the parliament and all the federal government departments to implement policies, or as we've discovered with the fallout from the PricewaterhouseCoopers scandal, paying consulting firms to develop and implement policy, the federal government spends money on several areas, including welfare, which is payments to Australians like the family tax benefit, the age pension, the disability support pension, single parent payments, youth allowance or job seeker, public sector wages, the wages of anyone working in the Australian public service or in the military or hospitals funded by the federal government. It spends it on Medicare and aged care, payments to states, territories and local governments so they can afford to administer their departments and implement policies, universities, building or purchasing public infrastructure and capital works or plant and equipment for those works, and the Australian Defence Forces, which includes what is called defence materiel, which includes things like submarines, for example. None of these things are specified in the appropriation bills. As I said earlier, the appropriation bills are just cracking open the piggy bank. So how does the media work out all the items that are listed in the budget and then report on the so-called winners and losers every year? Just as an aside, I can't tell you how much I despise the framing of the budget in winners and losers. It's really lazy journalism. If you pay attention to the reporting of the budget, you'll notice that economically literate journalists like Ross Gittins, who's an accountant, uh, Shane Wright and Greg Jericho, frame their reporting around whether or not the budget is going to be good for the nation and whether it's going to achieve the outcomes the government says it will. Any journalist framing the budget around whether you personally will have benefited or lost out from the measures included in the budget isn't doing you any favours. The federal budget is bigger than one individual. And we need to look at it in those terms. Anyway, so back to how they work all this out. The specific budget measures, like a $40 a fortnight raise in the job seeker rate, for example, are contained in the budget papers. And depending on what the measure is, there might also be legislation to make it happen. We'll get to that later. For now, the budget papers, according to the website of the Parliament of Australia, are documents presented to Parliament containing information on government finances and related matters. So things like raising JobSeeker would come under the heading of related matters. Information about government finances, which covers things like how much tax we collected and whether the budget will be in deficit or surplus, come under government finances. The budget papers can vary from year to year. In the 2014 budget, the financial outlook for women was famously removed, but in recent years, the Treasury has produced these documents. Budget paper number one, or the budget strategy and outlook, contains information on the economic and financial outlook together with information on the fiscal strategy. This is the paper that talks about whether or not we're going to be in surplus or deficit. Budget paper number two, or budget measures, provides a comprehensive statement on the budget expense, revenue and capital measures in the budget. This is the document that covers winners and losers. 
and all the items that I said would come under related matters. This is the document that most journalists will dive into when they're given the budget papers. Budget paper number three, or Federal Financial Relations, provides information on the Australian government's financial relations with the states, territories, and local government. It covers all the grants and other money that the federal government dishes out to the state and territory governments. It's a quirk of our federation that the states tend to do most of the spending, and it's the federal government that collects most of the money. That's called a fiscal vertical imbalance. So the federal government has to redistribute money to the states and territories to spend on services like education, hospitals, transport, that sort of stuff. And then lastly, budget paper number four, agency resourcing. This contains information on resourcing for Australian government agencies, including special appropriations, special accounts, and a summary of agency resourcing. This is the paper that details the budget for running all of the government departments. Now, you've probably heard of the forward estimates, and you might be wondering where they fit in. So expenditure on the budget measures doesn't happen just in the first year of the budget. A lot of programs need to be funded over multiple years. The forward estimates are projections of expected expenditure beyond the year that we're budgeting for. And they cover the three years after the budget year, so four years in total. And to be honest, they're really part of the budget theatre. If you can find me someone who can accurately estimate how much we'll be spending on something four years from now, I'd like to have a chat with them about next week's lotto numbers. But jokes aside, the estimates come in handy for next year's budget, where we know we've committed to spending money on certain programs and services in this year's budget, and that money has to keep rolling out. But very few journalists or economists take the forward estimates seriously as estimates. They're more of a guide or a guess. So if you come this far on the journey with me, you're probably wondering where budget night, the lockup, and the treasurer's budget speech fit into all of this. Budget night, apart from being Christmas for economics nerds, is where the budget gets presented to Parliament. And that's a whole process unto itself. But before we get to budget night, we have to talk about the budget lockup. So according to the Sitting Morning Herald, the budget lockup was started almost by accident by Ben Chifley in the 1940s in order to give the media time to file for their morning editions. The conventional wisdom is that the lockup is required to ensure nothing is released before the markets close for the day, which is why the Treasurer's speech is given at 7.30pm. This also accounts for the secrecy around budget measures, although in some years there have been so many leaks, or what my co-host Steve Beatty calls pre-budget releases, that journalists have questioned the need for a lockup at all. The lockup starts around lunchtime on budget day and lasts until the Treasurer stands up in Parliament and begins his speech. I say his because we've never managed to have a female Treasurer yet, but we live in hope. The media literally get locked up. They have to surrender their phones, smartwatches, etc. They don't have internet access and they have no contact with the outside world. They do get sandwiches and coffee though, so there's that. What they also get is access to the treasurer, who will visit everyone in the lockup and answer questions, as well as hold a press conference halfway through in order to give everyone a chance to go through the budget papers and put together their questions. 
They also get access to Treasury officials to ask about any numbers that don't add up or ask other questions. This part of the lockup is actually very valuable since the media don't usually get access to high-level officials in government departments with free reign to ask as many questions as they like. Journalists will spend the six hours or so of the lockup writing their stories and putting together graphs and other media ready to go live once the budget speech has begun. If you want to know more about the lockup, Amy Ramikas from The Guardian has a great Q&A piece about it, which I'll put in the show notes. So now we get to the handing down of the budget. This episode is already at risk of being far too long, so I won't go into how legislation is introduced to Parliament, read, debated and eventually passed. That's going to have to be an explainer episode all of its own. All you need to know for now is the budget is a piece of legislation and it's subject to the formal process that all legislation must go through in the Parliament. The budget is sufficiently special that it must be introduced by the Governor-General. I know, you probably thought that the Governor-General just rocks up to things and cuts ribbons, but he does actually have a a role to play in the Parliament. The Governor-General submits a message to the Parliament via the Speaker of the House recommending an appropriation for the purposes of the bill, which, if you recall, will be in regard to appropriation bill number one, the one that dips into the piggy bank to keep the country functioning. There's a special provision in the parliament to allow a minister, in this case the treasurer, to introduce this particular bill without notice. Usually parliament has to be notified that a bill is going to be introduced so people can prepare for it. Bills need to be read twice in the House of Representatives before they can be debated. And the Governor-General's message and recommendation for an appropriation counts as the first reading. The second reading is the big one. This is where the Treasurer makes the budget speech at 7.30pm that is broadcast around the nation. In moving the second reading, the Treasurer delivers the budget speech in which he, and maybe one day she, compares the estimates of the previous financial year with actual expenditure. Since unexpected stuff can crop up and turn your estimates into custard, things like bushfires, floods, pandemics, or wars in Eastern Europe, just to name a few that have happened over the last five years or so. They also provide an overview of the economic condition of the nation. Depending on where in the election cycle we're at, This will either be a rundown of the terrible condition the previous government left things in, and thank goodness a responsible adult government is now in charge and can fix it all, or everything is going brilliantly under the capable stewardship of the current government, you're all very welcome and should re-elect the government when the time comes. Then they have a go at estimating the anticipated income and expenditure for the current financial year, including the taxation measures proposed to meet the expenditure. So this last part is the fun bit, where they detail measures in the budget papers and then how they're planning on paying for it all. This is the bit that the media turns into winners and losers in their budget coverage. So once the Treasurer has delivered this speech, debate on the bill is adjourned, usually by the opposition leader. This is by design. Two days after the budget is handed down, Debate on the budget begins with the opposition leader's budget reply speech. The opposition get a right of reply to the budget, which is where the opposition leader essentially reacts to the budget, listing all the bits they don't like, and then putting forward what they would have done differently if they were in government. You've probably heard people refer to the budget as a piece of political theatre, and in a lot of ways it is. The opposition leader's budget reply is especially theatrical. Ever since the dismissal of the Whitlam government, 
there's been an ironclad but unspoken convention in the parliament about not blocking supply. The dismissal was so traumatising to the parliament that no opposition will ever refuse to pass the appropriation bills. So the opposition leader's budget reply is literally just an opportunity to give their two cents worth on the budget. And then the circus moves on to the Senate. I should add here that once the debate on the appropriation bill is adjourned, the rest of the budget papers get presented, and then sometime after this, the other appropriation bills, number two and three, get presented, usually by the Assistant Treasurer. So everyone has a job to do. The Senate will pass the appropriation bill, as per the convention I spoke about, but they will get stuck into the individual budget measures via Senate estimates which will have to be another explainer episode all on its own because estimates are a very important function of the Senate and I can't do them justice here. So now that you understand the difference between the appropriation bills and the budget measures, you might be wondering if budget measures can be blocked. And the answer is yes. While the Parliament has this unspoken convention about not blocking supply, which means the appropriation bills are guaranteed to pass, any budget measures not in the appropriation bills are fair game. The most famous example of this is the 2014 austerity budget introduced by Treasurer Joe Hockey and Prime Minister Tony Abbott. This budget is notorious for the fact that in trying to bring the budget back into surplus after the global financial crisis, Hockey and Abbott crafted a budget that punished low-income and vulnerable people while leaving the well-off alone which is perfectly in line with their ideology, except that in the 2013 election, they had promised not to do a lot of the stuff that ended up in the 2014 budget. Oops. What was interesting about this budget is that the initial response from the media was a bit, eh, nothing remarkable here. It's the traditional tough first budget after an election. It took about a week for the public outrage to reach such a crescendo that the media, and finally the parliament, twigged that there was something fundamentally wrong with this particular budget. So while the appropriation bills were passed without an issue, all of the budget measures that Abbott and Hockey had drawn up either got amended and made fairer, or they failed to pass at all. It was a disaster for the Abbott government and was the first major nail in the coffin for Tony Abbott's prime ministership. Joe Hockey's credibility as a prime ministerial candidate was absolutely shredded. So budgets are a big deal. Apart from outlining what's important to a government, and by extension the country, they can make or break a government, and they can make or break treasures. If you want an extreme example of how a budget can break a government, British Prime Minister Liz Trust was forced to resign 45 days into the job after a mini-budget she and her treasurer handed down crashed financial markets and blew a £30 billion hole in the country's economy. Political theatre, indeed. All of my references and some handy guides are in the show notes if you want to dive deeper into the budget process. I hope this has helped your understanding of the budget and how important it is, particularly in the lead-up to our budget review, which is coming soon. Keep the Bastards Honest is brought to you by the Australian Democrats. This episode was edited and produced by me, Alana Mitchell. If you'd like to keep in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and LinkedIn by searching for Australian Democrats and you can see what we stand for, what we value and what our policy positions are at our website at democrats.org.au. Until next time, thanks for listening. 